Morning, guys. So good to be with you today. I invite you to go ahead and open up your uh, Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, so good to be with you. If uh, you weren't here last week, uh, George opened up the passage for us in Genesis chapter 2. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. It was fantastic. Um, but by the time we got to the end of Genesis chapter 2, here's a little bit of background before we get into chapter 3. Uh, we left off uh, seeing Adam and Eve living, if you remember, just in unparalleled splendor, right? They were experiencing what the Bible calls shalom, perfect wholeness and peace and joy. It was just amazing the things that we've learned in these first two chapters. First off, Adam and Eve, if you remember, are in a covenant relationship with God at this point. In Genesis chapter 1, we focused on God, the, his name being Elohim, that was his otherness, his transcendence. But when we get into Genesis chapter 2, God gave himself his covenant name, made that known, that Yahweh name. That was his covenant name, which symbolized that God and his love loves you and I so much that he actually wants to be in an intimate relationship with us. So he's not just this transcendent God, but he's this God who's made himself known and wants to be in this covenant with us. Um, so they were experiencing that. They were also, Adam and Eve, in covenant with one another. They were married. Uh, God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he provided for him a wife, a good wife, Eve. And Adam just sang his guts out. He delighted. He says, at last my bride is here. And he sang over her. He would get this, this first poem in history right there in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, they were delighting in one another. They were living in naked majesty as we end Genesis chapter 2. I was reading one scholar and he said, you know, that's not some form of eroticism, like some sort of nudist beach that we have going on in Genesis chapter 2. All that was doing, it was symbolizing their innocence before one another. Uh, they were completely blameless. They had no embarrassment, which was just a shadow of their spiritual nakedness before God, that they were completely blameless before Him. Everything was perfect. Beyond that, they were in relationship with God, with one another. They were also living in God's land. They were dwelling with the Lord, if you can imagine. They were actually walking with God. That's what the garden was. It was His sanctuary, His dwelling place on the world. Now, if later in the Bible, when we get to Exodus, when we see the temple, or rather the tabernacle and later the temple, you'll see that those are constructed, modeled after the garden. Um, all the different, you know, we get all these construction notes of how these things are put together, but they're modeling the garden because the temple and the tabernacle, in a bridled way, but still God's presence was in those things. But in the garden, it was unbridled. Adam and Eve were actually walking with the Lord. Can you, I just can't imagine what that was like. Perfect. And beyond that, they were living peaceably under God's rule. They were God's priests. They were to steward God's good creation. They were to mediate His grace and His presence in all of the world. His voice, God's voice, was the only voice they listened to or cared to listen to. They trusted it. They desired it. They submitted to it. Can you imagine, brothers, never having to be disciplined in your own devotional life? Adam and Eve never had a moment prior to the fall where they thought to themselves, man, I really have to get into God's Word. They were just in it. They were, they were the picturesque uh, example of what devotion is. They were... Uh, they were the essence of what a true worshiper was supposed to be. It was just absolute bliss. Perfect shalom as we leave Genesis chapter 2. Now even though God said all of that was good, 
and that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were very good, we know that goodness doesn't exactly describe life for us now, does it? There is no more shalom, at least perfect shalom. There's brokenness now. As Art prayed for, we have first responders for a reason. There's something wrong in the world. There's suffering, there's pain, there's conflict. There's racism, there's sexism, there's oppression, there's war, there's death. All of which are an aberration of what was supposed to be. And because of that, everyone in the world, with every world religion and every worldview, they try to figure out what in the heck went wrong. Because everybody, every human being, whether if they're a Christian or not, knows down deep in their bones what is, is not, is what ought to be. Something happened. What happened? Well, Genesis 3 answers that for us. And what we're going to find in Genesis 3 is that the Bible not only answers the question to us, what happened to the world? But infinitely more important, brothers, it points us to the only hope of the world. Genesis 3 does. And therefore, our only hope too. So let's open up Genesis 3 together and pray for the Lord's guidance and illumination as we read this together. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam said, The woman that you gave me, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? Then the woman said, the serpent that was in the garden, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and dust you shall return. Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing in good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, brothers. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you that you've called us here this morning, providentially, even before the foundation of the world, you set in stone that we might be here this morning to have fellowship with other brothers, but ultimately to hear from you. So Father, we pray that you would guard my tongue, that you would form my words and use me, this broken vessel, to speak to all of us, that you would open our hearts and our ears to your truth, that we simply would not be informed, that we might know more, but that we might be transformed by your Spirit to be more like your Son. As we look through the darkest chapter of Scripture, O oh Lord God, we pray that you would sober us, but that you would also point us to our only hope, Jesus Christ. We love you, Father, and it's in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, I've told a story before, and if you've heard it, I'm, I apologize, but this story, for me anyway, is so arresting, and it's extremely illustrative of what we're about to study in Genesis chapter 3. In the 1960s, after he was found in South America, Adolf Eichmann, one of the chief architects behind the Holocaust, was arrested and brought back to Germany to stand trial for his crimes against humanity in the Holocaust. Um, at his trial, they brought forth a whole bunch of witnesses that were there that saw him do the things that he did. And one of those witnesses was uh, Yehiel de Neuer. He was a survivor of Auschwitz. Now, the day that de Neuer was to stand trial, or at least uh, uh, give testimony, he walked into the courtroom and he saw Eichmann. He saw the man that murdered his family members, his friends, and was responsible for the slaughter of millions more. As he walked into the courtroom, he locked eyes with Eichmann, victim and murderous tyrant, and they just looked at each other for a bit. And everyone was wondering, what in the world's going to happen? What did happen, I'm not sure anybody really expected, um, de Neuer fell to his knees and wailed. He wept uncontrollably, so much so that he couldn't give testimony in that moment. Years later in the 80s, Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes interviewed Denour and asked him, what were you experiencing in that moment? Was it post-traumatic stress? Was it, was it rage? Were you sad? What, what was it? And Denour said that when he walked in that courtroom and saw his nightmare, the man who haunted his dreams, he realized that Eichmann wasn't a demon. He didn't have horns like he imagined. He didn't have a, a tail. He didn't have a forked tongue. Nor is he a superman. He wasn't this untouchable being. But rather, just like Denur, Eichmann was a human being. And when he walked into that room, he realized that at the end of the day, he really is no different than Eichmann. And he wept that day in the courtroom, not really because of Eichmann, but rather because Denur was terrified about himself. After the interview, Mike Wallace turns to the camera and says, what makes it possible for a man like Eichmann to do what he did? Was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or is he something possibly even more terrifying? Was he normal? It's not a great story. 
but it certainly is an arresting one. Because I think Denur realized what I think Genesis 3 teaches. It doesn't really matter who you are, brothers. Sin and evil is just a part of the human condition. Uh, we, 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 that's, just, that's just the way it is. And, and it doesn't really matter what you have done or what you have left undone or what you have hidden, at least at the heart level, because you and I are in Adam, we're really no better than Eichmann. That's essentially what Genesis 3 teaches. Genesis 3 teaches makes clear what Paul says explicitly in Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul tells us that God establishes this rule of headship, that he's going to establish this covenant head who's going to represent the rest of us. But when Adam sinned, he's essentially the quarterback of this team that we call humanity. And whatever play that Adam chooses affects the rest of us. And when Adam sinned and when he fell, he took the rest of us with him, all of those that he represents. So we're sinners essentially not because we sin, but rather we, are, we sin because we are sinners in Adam. That's who we are in our very nature. This is why G.K. Chesterton would later say in his life when someone asked him, G.K., this great thinker, G.K., what's wrong with the world? G.K. said, I am wrong with the world. There's lots of things wrong out there, but ultimately I am what's wrong with the world because I am in Adam. That's what Genesis 3 teaches. But brothers, here's the good news. That's not all that Genesis 3 teaches. The Bible is ultimately a book of grace. And what we're going to see that even in the tragic story of our fall, God is a gracious God. But the thing that we have to understand is we are never going to receive the amazing grace of God by faith until we understand our desperate need of it. And that's what Moses makes clear in Genesis 3. You and I in Adam are in desperate need of grace, but the good news is, is that God gives it. And all that we must do is receive it by faith. We have two points today. A lot of subpoints, but just two main points. Number one, Adam's sin ruins us, but God's grace restores us. All right, so let's just look at that first point. Adam's sin ruins us. We see this in verses 1 through 13 and verses 16 through 19. We're going to spend most of our time in this point because really Genesis 3 spends most of its time in this point talking about this tragic truth that Adam's sin ruins us. There's several movements in this story, all of which take us further down into the pit. And I think it's wise for us just to make note of some of these things and to think about it because it helps us in our own journey in faith, and our own struggle against the flesh. Now, what's this first movement? The first movement we see in verse 1 when we meet the intruder. In verse 1, we meet the intruder. Moses tells us, really without much fanfare or without much introduction, that the serpent has entered the garden. Now, we aren't told much as to the origin of this serpent other than originally it was created by God and it was good. Now, that's really all that we're told about it. We're told that it is crafty, and that could have meant a couple of different things based on what scholar you read, but we're not told that much. However, there is early indication, brothers, that this was not a normal snake. Item number one, this serpent spoke. I mean, that didn't seem to bother Eve that much, but can you imagine walking down the green line? And a copperhead comes out with the voice of Morgan Freeman? I mean, that would freak you out. We would need a clean pair of shorts after hearing something like that. It didn't affect Eve, though. However, it should have. There was a major red flag. There was only one other animal in the Bible that spoke. Do you remember what that was? It was Balaam's ass. And it only spoke because it had demonic influence over it. There was something not normal about this serpent. 
I mean, just think about it. God gave us the ability to speak, to rule over creation, but here, that's flipped on its head. Here's a creature using the ability to speak to rule over Adam and Eve. No, something was not normal. And the New Testament ultimately tells us the full identity of that ancient serpent. It was none other than Satan himself, the great deceiver of the world, the apostle John tells us. So that's who we're dealing with. We're dealing with Satan himself. Satan has entered the garden. Now, at this point, most people ask questions about the problem of evil. Well, where the heck did Satan come from? Where did evil come from? This might frustrate you. Genesis 3 doesn't really answer that question. That doesn't seem to be the question that Genesis 3 is interested in answering. However, there are other places in Scripture that we can look. From Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, we know that Angels, including Lucifer, Satan, rebelled against God and they fell. And we can also deduce that at some point before this, Satan came over and influenced this created creature, this snake, much like he did Judas. But outside of that, we don't know much. However, there are some very important things that we can take from this. Number one, God did not create evil. God did not create sin. He created the snake. He created angels. But he did not create the fall, he did not create sin, he did not create evil. That's important for us to remember because in our sin, as we'll later see, sometimes we blame other people. I blamed my wife for something stupid just yesterday that was clearly my fault, but I blamed her to justify myself. Sometimes we blame God. God, you gave me this wife. God, you put that in the world. What Genesis 3 does is it causes us to disbelieve that. God did not create evil. God did not create sin. Nor was sin some ancient power that's always existed like the forces of light and the forces of dark, like this is some Star Wars story. Just disbelieve that. God did not create evil. It didn't always exist. It intruded into God's good creation. It's intruder. The second thing that we learned is even though that's true, God is still sovereign over those things, brothers. I love this. At the end of verse 1, what does Moses say? He says, the serpent entered the garden, the serpent that God had made. What does that tell me? What does that tell you? This is what it tells me. It tells me that even though Satan and sin and evil are much more powerful than little old Barton, they're not more powerful than God. God is sovereign over all of that. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but we can rest assured that God is still in sovereign power over those things. In the first sentence of the most tragic story ever, the story of our fall, we have a message of hope, brothers, that God is sovereign. It's the second thing that we learn. The third thing that we learn is really just from Moses' makeup of this story. You know, we say to ourselves, where in the world did Satan come from? It seems like he just came out of nowhere. It's, it's just unexplainable. That's purposeful. I love what St. Augustine said. St. Augustine says, it's impossible to think of a rational explanation for the origin of evil. It's impossible because it's kind of like listening to silence or trying to see in darkness. You just can't do it. It's impossible to think of a rational explanation for evil and sin because evil and sin in their very essence are irrational. And we're going to see that in our text. I mean, irrational things happen given what we know about Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So there's a mystery here. They call it the problem of evil for a reason. You know, we're not certainly going to solve it this morning, I can assure you. But it's just something that we're going to have to wait to heaven to really to understand more fully and completely. But God didn't create it. God is sovereign over it. It's irrational. And lastly, it seems as if even though Satan is our ultimate enemy, he has come to seek, steal, and destroy, which he did do and is doing. It seemed as if God, through Moses, is pointing our attention to the actions of Adam and Eve. 
It's not that what Satan did isn't important. It is. But he wants us to focus more on what Adam and Eve did. All the verses are really directed towards them. And he wants us to focus on what they did because what they did has massive implications for us. All right, but this is that first movement, things that we learn that there is an intruder. Secondly, we learn the strategy of Satan. This is in verse 1b through the end of verse 5. We see the strategy that Satan used to lead our first parents into the fall. Now, this is a two-pronged strategy. It's an ancient strategy that we still see employed today, and we can learn a lot about this, about our own fight for faith, our own fight against the flesh, by just understanding what Satan's strategy is. It's two-pronged. The first prong is that Satan goes after God's word. He attacks God's word. We see this every day in media and secular society, even in liberal churches or the health, wealth, gospel, prosperity, and all that type stuff. It's an ancient strategy. It's not a new phenomenon. Satan goes after God's word. Now, initially, he does this indirectly. He plants seeds of doubt in Eve. We see that in verse 1. What does Satan say? Satan says, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree? Now, it seems like an honest question. It seems like Satan's just wanting clarity. Did God say this? But, brothers, we know that this is the great deceiver of the world. We know there's an underlying strategy. And what is that strategy? He's planting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. He's causing her, he's giving her the desire to put herself in a position of judgment over God's word. This isn't talking about interpretation as we're doing this morning, but it's the desire to put herself over God's word in a place of judgment, deciding whether or not if God's word is true and good. She has this desire, it's like, well, maybe God isn't right about this. Maybe I might know better. That's the intent behind that question. Isn't that really what we do when we fall to temptation? We put ourselves in a place of judgment over God's word. Is God really good? Is he wise in saying this? I mean, just think about all the times that we give into sin. There's a, there's a certain line of thinking that we do, that's a certain line of questions that we ask ourselves. We think to ourselves, you know what? When God said that, when he commanded that, that was a long time ago. This here is the 21st century in America. God didn't take into account all the things that we have to suffer through right now. I mean, come on. God's being unreasonable. We, we certainly can't follow that. God doesn't care. Or we might say that principle or that standard, that's culturally biased. That's outdated. We're enlightened now. I can kind of really do whatever I want because God did not understand what was going to be happening in the 21st century. God's word just isn't accurate here. It's not good. It's not wise. There's a lot of people that think that way. I think that way whenever I give in to sin. There are actually some churches that teach that way of thinking, but brothers, that is not an enlightenment. That is giving in to that ancient strategy of putting ourselves in a position of authority over God's word, judging whether or not if it's good or not. Can you, can you imagine? But after Satan sees that he's gaining some traction with Eve, in verse 4, he just goes for broke, and he outright contradicts God's word. He said, I know that God said you're going to die, but you're not going to die. Just go ahead and eat it. Isn't it interesting that the first doctrine denied was the doctrine of God's judgment? We live in a world today where we're told that happiness is the most important thing. Whatever God says, if it conflicts with your happiness, don't worry about it. Just choose you. You do you, Barton Kimbrough. God is ultimately out for your happiness anyway, so he's going to understand. That's not a new phenomenon. That's an ancient strategy. But nevertheless, Satan attacks God's word. Why? Because Satan knows ultimately if we're uprooted from what God says in his word, Eventually, we're going to doubt God's character. 
which is exactly what happens in verse 5. What does Satan say in verse 5? He says, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. Do you hear the evil intent behind what Satan says there? He's saying, listen, Barton, God is jealous of you. God doesn't really care about you. He, he's keeping you from experiencing your full potential. He's keeping you from your happiness. God is just a tyrant. He's, he wants to rule over you. Don't you understand you don't need God or to listen to him? That's what Satan was doing here. Satan understands that if we allow there to be distance between us and God's word, eventually we're going to doubt his character, which will result in distance between us and God himself. Friends, this is why it's so very important that we become students of God's word. And I'm not just talking about on Wednesday or Thursday mornings or whatever day this is. We need to be students of God's word every single day. God tells us in his son that he gives us these things not to condemn us, not to... to, to to be a straitjacket around us, but he gives us his word for our joy so that our joy might be complete in him and his joy might be in us so that we might abide in him, grow in our fellowship with him, our desire for him and our love for him. But if we never talk to him, if we never go to his word, just like our marriages, our relationship with him is going to become less intimate. Eventually, there's just going to be distance between us and God. And that is Satan's ultimate goal. And we see that all the way back in verse 1, don't we? Did you notice that Satan, when he first addressed Eve, he used the Genesis 1 name of God? Genesis 1, that Elohim name, that other-centeredness name. He said Elohim, not Yahweh, which God has been using since Genesis 2, that covenant name. You see what Satan's doing? He's putting a wedge between her and God, trying to get her to forget about God's love and his covenant relationship with her and his goodness. He's saying, listen, God is other than you. He doesn't really care about you. He's way too busy for you. Just forget about him because he's not thinking about you. That's Satan's strategy. Now, the result of this, of course, is the fall in verses 2, 3, and 6, particularly 6. Now, knowing what we know from Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, this strategy from Satan should have fallen flat on its face, shouldn't it have? I mean, just think about it. Adam and Eve, they were in a relationship with God. They were walking with him. They knew him. They trusted him. Everything they good that they had came from God. This serpent was a stranger. They just met it. They didn't know it from Adam's cat, if Adam had a cat. It was a complete stranger. They knew God, though. And they knew God that was good. I mean, they were in relationship with him, yet they ate of the fruit. It's completely inexplainable. It's irrational what they did. The point is, friends, yes, Satan instigates the fall, but Adam and Eve, their hands are they're not clean in this. They fell all on their own. Just look at verse 2 and 3. Look what Eve did. Eve herself, without Satan's help, distorted God's word. First off, she diminished God's word. When she initially responded to uh, Satan's question, she says, no, 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 God said that we could eat of the trees of the garden. And it sounds like she's defending God and defending God's word. But notice that she left out a very important word. She, let out, she left out the word every. God said that you might eat of every tree except for that one because that one's not good for you, Adam and Eve. But that's not what Eve said. He just said, God said we could eat of all the trees. Of, 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 of the trees of the garden, God said we could eat them. She diminished God's promise. She diminished God's provision and his grace in verse 2. But it gets worse. She hardens God's word later. She says, God said that we, we couldn't eat of the tree, um, nor could we touch it. God never said you couldn't touch the tree. He just said you couldn't 
eat it. Okay, it said nothing about touching. But she hardened God's word. She made him seem unreasonable. Ultimately, she softened God's word by saying, God said we couldn't do those things lest we die. But God didn't use the word lest. He said, surely you will die if you do these things. But she softened God's word to his command, the, the borders of his law. And why would she do that? To justify the sinful desires of her heart. And don't we do that, that we, we diminish God's law, we harden it, make him seem unreasonable, we soften his law in order to justify the sinful things that we want to do. I do that all the time when I fall to sin. Now what did Adam do? Adam's the responsible one. <laughs> it seems like Eve did a lot. What did Adam do? Why was he responsible? Adam was responsible because he was given the responsibility to be the head of humanity. He was supposed to guard God's word. He was supposed to lead God's people spiritually, particularly his wife. But here he is, a coward, standing behind his wife, passively letting this tragedy happen. Both of them, in their own way, rebelled against God's word. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, when you rebel against God's word, or rather as he says it, when you seek wisdom and joy outside of God's word, God is extinguished in us. It's not that we hate him, we simply forget him. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They moved outside of God's word and they forgot them. They forgot the Lord they have known. And you see how fast the fall happens. In verse 6, we get these, these verbs that just happen in quick succession. After Eve and Adam moved outside of God's word, Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, she took the fruit, she ate the fruit, she gave the fruit to her husband, her husband ate the fruit, and the whole world went to hell. Just like that when they moved outside of God's word. But the crux of original sin is this, while we were supposed to show loyalty and devotion to God's word, they rebelled. And as a result, there are some major consequences that happened. But before we look at that, let's just take a note, a quick note, about the nature of sin. It's good for us to understand what sin is and what it does. And we learn a lot of stuff in Genesis chapter 3 just about the essence of sin. But here's three things that I saw. And if you see anything else, let me know after this and I'll write them down for next time. But three things that we see about sin. First off, sin is ultimately a denial of God's love. That's what it is at the end of the day. I mean, if you go back to chapter 2 and we, we studied that tree of knowledge of good and evil, there wasn't anything inherently special about this tree. It wasn't a magical tree or anything. The only thing that set that tree apart was God's word. God said simply, do not eat of it. Trust me. There wasn't anything special about it. However, to eat of that tree meant that you were choosing moral autonomy, that you were going to be the one that decides what is good and what is evil for yourself. So this is what God was initially saying in that prohibition. It's Adam and Eve, I love you so much. Amen, I love you so much. And I'm not going to give you the burden of having to decide what is evil and what is good. I, the, the creator of all things, the source of goodness, I have chosen to be your moral compass. All you have to do is listen to me and trust me. What a gift that is. That's, that, that's, that's, that's it right there in the prohibition. God promising to be our moral reasoning for us. What a gift. Because just think about it, all the knowledge that Adam and Eve had, the only knowledge they had was goodness. They already had that. They were created very good. Everything they experienced in the garden was good. God was the source of goodness. The only knowledge they did not have was evil. And so God, in his love, gave them the limitation of not having to know what evil was. 
What a gift. Of course, our culture says anything that limits you is, is an evil of itself, right? Because it's just keeping us from our full potential. But God says, brothers, there's just certain things I don't want you to know because it's not for your good. And there's plenty of things in the scriptures that God tells us that we don't need to know. We don't need to know information about each other that comes to us through gossip. We don't need to know biblically another woman who is not our wife, whether that's from an actual affair or through pornography. God does not want us to know that type of information. James says there's a good knowledge, a good wisdom from above, but there's also a satanic knowledge that comes from hell. And God says, in my original design, I did not want you to know of it. I just wanted you to be free from it. Can you imagine never having been jaded over the things that we have done and seen in this life? Can you imagine never having those memories that are just seared into our mind, those images of things that we've looked at or things that we've done or have left undone? Can you imagine never having to experience guilt or shame or fear ever? That was God's original intent. How loving is that? But in our sin, just like Adam and Eve, we, we see this limitation in our life and we automatically assume, well, God doesn't love us. He might as well have not given us anything. That's what Adam and Eve did. They had everything good, but God gave them this very good limitation, and they said to themselves, well, if God didn't give us this, he might as not as well have given us anything. How could God be good if he keeps us from something? Have you ever been in that spot before where you've just outright denied the fact that God loves you because you've been so focused on what God has limited you from, you've completely forgotten about all the good things that God has given us? There are plenty of things that we know why God keeps us from it. But there's also things that we just don't really know. I don't know why some of us aren't married that want to be. I don't know why some of us who are married don't have children but want them. There's certain things that God just doesn't give us. But what the Bible does tell us is that whatever deprivation that God has sovereignly given us is ultimately for our good. Then Paul says in Romans 5.8, we never have to doubt God's love no matter what our deprivation in this life is because God ultimately demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And if God did not spare his only son, will he not also graciously give us all things? <laughs> Adam and Eve had no reason to doubt God's love. And as Christians on this side of the cross, we especially have no reason to doubt God's love but in our sins, sometimes we focus on these limitations or on God's commands or on his prohibition, and we conclude in our sin, in our irrational minds, that God doesn't love us. That's what sin is. Secondly, also, too, you see that sin never delivers on its promise. Uh, really, the first sin was all about pride. It was the attempt to self-rule, to de-God God, and to enthrone yourself as king. That's what Adam and Eve were tempted with. And the promises that Satan embedded in that, that temptation were these. If you want to be happy, you have to put a border between you, your happiness, your sense of happiness, and God's standard for holiness. You actually have to deal away with God. Do away with God if you want to be happy. If you want to be like God, just don't listen to God because you can be God yourselves. Those were the promises. It sounds appealing, but that's not at all what happened, is it? I mean, this is, this is actually the greatest picture of irony in existence. Just think about it. Human beings, unlike Satan, who was a creature, human beings were given the grace of being created in God's image. However, when they obeyed the voice of a creature rather than the voice of a creator, they fell from that grace. Adam and Eve, they were already free. They were already kings and queens over all of creation. But when they moved outside of God's word, 
moving outside of God's word, they were promised freedom. But as soon as they moved outside of God's word, they were led into bondage. Sin never delivers on what it promises. I mean, how many times have we sinned, right? And we just thought to ourselves, after the deed was done, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have possibly believed what that sin promised me? And when we do weird, crazy stuff, irrational stuff, based off what sin promises us. For example, this is something I just read a couple of, a couple of days ago. Have y'all had the new Popeye's chicken sandwich yet? Has anybody had that thing? We have a couple of takers. I've not yet left the Jesus chicken from Chick-fil-A, but I hear it's good. But people are going nuts over this chicken sandwich. I don't know what they're putting in the breading, but people are doing weird things. The weirdest thing I've ever seen, of yet anyway, were two weeks ago, a man robbed a Popeye's chicken in Houston, Texas at gunpoint. It wasn't nighttime. I mean, it was like at 4 o'clock. People were eating dinner. There were kids in there. This man with a gun walks into the store. He walks past the customers, mind you, those people who had wallets and purses and jewelry. He walked past them. He walked past the register, which was chock filled with money because everybody and their mama were buying chicken sandwiches. He walked past the register. He never asked where the safe was. No, he went right back into the kitchen to steal a chicken sandwich. At gunpoint, he stole chicken sandwiches. He was eventually arrested and put behind bars. And I really want to drive to Houston, Texas and just ask him, was it worth it? <laughs> was, it, was, it was it juicy enough for you? Are those bars, I mean, are you fine being behind bars? Was that chicken sandwich really that good? Sin never delivers on its promises. It's never worth it. I've never met a man who has struggled with pornography who was happy about that. Joy is not the primary emotion that person feels after he's looked at it. But sin, that's what sin does. It promises us pleasure. It promises to be this tasty morsel on the way down, but once it gets down into your stomach, it just rots you from the inside out, does it not? The great lie of sin is that you can have freedom apart from God's word. But that's simply a doorway into bondage. Sin never delivers on what it promises. Ultimately, brothers, sin is treason. It's, it's a direct offense against our creator God. It's treason. It's not just a rejection of God's law. It's ultimately a rejection of God himself, right? Our sin is never impersonal. It's never this principle. It's never just doctrine. It's an actual adulterous affair against our covenant God. We've got to remember that to dissuade ourselves from ever believing that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. As if our life is compartmentalized and our sin is just over here, it doesn't affect anybody. We've got to dissuade ourselves from thinking that, okay, well, no one will ever know about this sin. It doesn't really hurt anybody. It's not that big of a deal. But remember what King David said in Psalm 51.4. It doesn't matter if anybody doesn't know about your sin. Ultimately, all of our sin winds up before the throne of God because all of our sins are a direct assault against him. And as the Apostle James says, no matter if you've kept the entire law, but have just broken one iota of it, you're guilty of all of it, which tells us that just one tiny little sin, those sins that don't hurt anybody, that no one knows about, just a tiny little sin like that was enough to necessitate the cross of Jesus Christ. It's treason, and because of that treason, we forfeit the good life of being under God's rule and God's place as God's people, because sin unwinds all of that. That's the reason the world is the way it is. That's the reason that we are the way that we are. Adam sinned, the world broke, and so did we. 
And because of that, brothers, there are some massive consequences that have implications for us. Remember, Paul says in Romans 5 that the crisis of our humanity is not that you and I sin individually. The crisis of our humanity is that we're caught up in the original sin of Adam and his consequences are our consequences. Just listen to these consequences. They explain us perfectly. The first result of the fall we see in verse 7 was shame. After Adam and Eve had their eyes open, they realized they were naked. Now, naked, remember, it used to be a symbol of their innocence and blamelessness, but now it was an indication of their shame. They were afraid to be known by each other, so they covered themselves and they hid. They experienced shame. What is shame? Shame is a profound repulsion over who we are as a result of knowing our own sin. It's a deep embarrassment in the deepest parts of our humanity. We've all experienced this. We all have this. Shame. They were afraid of being known by each other, so they hid from each other. But worse off, they were afraid of being known by God. They had no reason to be afraid of God. Even after they sinned, they've never known God to be vindictive or cruel. In their right minds, they should have run to God so God could pick them back up. They had already assassinated God's character because they disbelieved his word. And they're saying to themselves now, how could this God love me? we got to hide from him. And all they needed to do was simply run back to the Father who loves them. But brothers, is that not what we do? When we sin, we're profoundly embarrassed over the things that we've done, so we hide our sin from our spouses, we hide our sin from each other, and we try to hide from God. We don't use fig leaves, but we're expert hiders. We're image managers. We put up a veneer. We paint on a smile so everybody else will think that we're, we're doing good, that we're happy-go-lucky. We try to do well at work and do well at home so people will think we're great, but the problem is we simply cannot hide from God. Read Psalm 139 if you don't believe me. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Another problem is, is that we cannot fix our shame problem because we actually are ashamed. We're guilty of our sin. So while we look good on the outside, down deep, brothers, don't we just feel like we're being torn apart? Embarrassed and ashamed over the things that we've done. And what does shame do? It just drives you further into the darkness where that sin and that shame grows like a fungus. So that's the first result, it's shame. The second result is broken shalom. I'm going to kind of skip over this point because in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see the outgrowth of this broken shalom. But everything that used to be perfect no longer is. Our relationship with God is broken, obviously. Our relationship with ourselves are broken. Not only do we experience shame, but we're just not at home in our own bodies anymore. We get older. Things don't work as they used to. For some of us, they never worked as they were supposed to since we were born. Some of us, all of us, are broken mentally in some way and sexually in some way and spiritually in some way. We just don't work the way that we were supposed to work. Our relationship with each other is broken in our marriages and also with our neighbor. This is the very reason there's such a thing as oppression and sexism and racism and all the other type of conflicts that we have. It's the very reason that we have church conflicts and church splits. Our relationship with creation is broken. The very things that God gave us to do, to be fruitful in, like giving birth to image bearers or tilling the land and expanding its potential as God has done, now causes us pain and frustration because it just doesn't work properly anymore. Creation groans and so do we groan. But worst of all, brothers, the, the ultimate result of the fall is condemnation. God exiled Adam and Eve from his presence because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. 
It's like oil and water. So he exiles them from his presence, which results in spiritual death. They're cut off from the tree of life, which was synonymous with God's presence. They're empty. And they're dying, not only spiritually, but also physically. There's no such thing as natural death. I mean, the best that we can hope for in this life is that we would die of natural causes and old age and the comfort of our own homes. But even that is not natural. Death is an aberration from what God intended to be. And as Paul says, the wages of sin is death, death in toto, both death, spiritual death, and physical death. And because Adam did what he did, those are our consequences as well. Now just ask yourself the question, is that fair? And this whole idea of federal headship and representation, I mean, is that fair? My knee-jerk reaction is always to say, no, it's not fair. God never asked me if I wanted to be represented. Did he ask you? Let me know if he did. But he certainly didn't ask me. And if he's going to bend my arm on this, at least give me the choice of choosing who I want to represent me. I could have chosen someone better than Adam. What a buffoon. Here's the thing. We could not have done better than Adam. No one could have. All right, in that perfected state, Adam is the only person that could have resisted temptation, but since he fell, every single one of us would have fallen too. But here's the good news. I know it sounds like it's bad news, but here's the good news of representation, this rule of federal headship. Not only does it explain why we are the way that we are as fallen image bearers, it also explains our only hope as image bearers too. And this leads us to the great news of Genesis 3. God's grace restores us completely, brothers. Genesis 3 is dark, and it needs to be dark because it's explaining why the world is the way that it is. But brothers, the sin and the consequences we see in Genesis chapter 3 is not the point of Genesis chapter 3. We do need to sit in that darkness, but only so that we might see the bright light of the gospel. The point of Genesis 3 is that while our sin is great, God's love is infinitely greater. And even in the tragic story of our fall, we see that God is a gracious God. Who is our God? We learn so much about him just in his response to our sin. Who is our God? Well, first off, he is the God that seeks sinners. He's the God that seeks traitors, that seeks rebels. Don't you find it interesting that in verse 9, after Adam and Eve foolishly tried to hide from God, that God doesn't try to hide from Adam and Eve? God is the only one that is just in hiding from anybody because he's the one that was sinned against, but he doesn't hide from Adam and Eve, these rebels, these traitors. He doesn't hide from them. He seeks after them. And he does so gently. He doesn't come after them with a thunderbolt ready to squash them like a bug. He comes after them gently asking questions. Questions, by the way, that he knew the answer to. So why would he ask questions he knows the answer to? Because he's gently leading Adam and Eve back into the light. He's given them the opportunity to self-reflect, to self-diagnose, to confess their sins so they might repent and be restored to him. Moses was telling sinful Israel, listen, there's only one true God, and our true God, the one true God, is not like those pagan gods that you learned about. They're not, he's, he is not capricious. He's not angry. He's not cruel. His mission is not to destroy you, Israel, but rather it's to restore you, Israel. 
And brothers, don't you know that's the same God that, choose, that seeks after you? Did you know that even in your worst moment, God seeks you? The worst thought that you could have ever have had. Those that were so afraid of other people knowing. Did you know that God still seeks you in that moment? If you don't believe me, just, just hear what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. I've come to seek and save the lost. God seeks after you. It doesn't matter if you've been running your entire life away from him. It doesn't matter if you've not done business with him in years. Because he pursues after you, all that you must do is simply turn and embrace the one who wants to embrace you because he has never left you, even in your worst moment. Why? Because he loves you. Who is this God? He's the one that seeks after rebels. Who is this God? He's also the one that clothes sinners. What happens after Adam and Eve clothe themselves by making loincloths out of fig leaves? That wouldn't have worked very well. Fig leaves, come on. What does God do? God clothes them. He clothes them with something more durable, something more long-lasting. He makes a sacrifice and provides for them loincloths from animal skins. Now, first off, this shows us that our sin problem is much greater than we think it is. We cannot possibly cover our own shame. We cannot deal with our own sin. But it also tells us that it's not too big for God. God, in his love, provides for us. And he provided for Adam and Eve loincloths made from an animal sacrifice. Now, what does that point to? Well, a later that will point to the sacrificial system that uh, Moses instills in Exodus, which ultimately highlights the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But the point is, whatever causes you shame, God is not ashamed of you. You cannot outrun God's love and God's grace. He covers your shame. Not only that, he removes it altogether. How? Well, what do we know in the gospel? Jesus takes on every ounce of our shame. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, what does he say? Jesus says, for the love set before me, I endured the cross and I despise your and my shame. What does that mean? He's kind of personifying shame. Shame which is just tearing us apart. This is what Jesus says to your shame. He says, shame, I want you to look at this joy that my Father in heaven set before me. That is my power, not you. You think you're in power over my people? Well, I'm going to take out your stinger. I'm going to derobe you of your power. I'm going to rescue my disciples. I'm going to take them from your dungeons and I'm going to clothe them with my righteousness. And how does he do that? He, becomes, he who knew no sin becomes sin so that through him you and I might be clothed in the righteousness of God. Who is this God? He's the one that seeks after us as sinners. He's the one that clothes us with the righteousness of his own son. He's also the God that shows grace and judgment. God isn't just this angry tyrant. Even when he judges us, he shows us grace when he exiled Adam and Eve. Yes, he exiled them because sin could not be in his holy presence. But don't you know that very act of exiling Adam and Eve was also a gracious act? He says we cannot let, speaking of himself, a triune God, we cannot let Adam and Eve live forever in this ruined state. Live forever with the knowledge of shame and fear and guilt. So he exiles them out, much like the prodigal son, so they would come to the end of themselves and finally be compelled to go back to their father. Now how does Jesus ultimately get us back to the father? 
What did Jesus say on the cross? He quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus ask that question? Because if, in you, if you are in him by faith, you will never have to ask that question. God exiles his son in order to bring us back into his presence. Who is this God? He's the God that seeks after us as sinners. He's the God that clothes us with his son's righteousness. He's the God that compels us to come back to himself. It even shows us grace and judgment. He's also the God who curses Satan. He tells Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. Now, what does that mean? He means that I'm going to raise up a hatred between my people and you, Satan. Now, it is no surprise that, hate, that Satan hates us. Of course he hates us. That's, the whole, that's his whole motivation behind the fall. He hates us as image bearers. But what is the surprise is that we are able now to hate Satan. That you and I are able to hate sin. Adam and Eve and, and Satan, they were in cahoots with together. But God in his grace breaks this up. He says, Satan, you can trip up my people, but you cannot have them. I'm going to raise them up, and I'm going to open up their eyes so they might love the things that I love and hate the things that I hate, you, and evil, and sin. Friends, it's just by God's grace that we're able to hate and mourn after our sin. You should be thankful that you mourn your sin. If you don't, pray that God would open your eyes to it, because we cannot receive the gospel of grace if we do not mourn and hate our sin. Ultimately, God is the God who promises the seed of the woman. God is the God who promises full redemption to fallen image bearers through the promise of the second Adam. Brothers, Genesis 3.15 is the greatest verse in the Old Testament in my mind. It's the first pronouncement of the gospel all the way in the story of the fall. He gives us the promise of the gospel. What does he tell us in Genesis 3.15? Two things. First off, he says Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent. That means that he's going to completely destroy, give a fatal blow to Satan himself. That he will conquer our ancient enemies of Satan and sin. He'll even take out the stinger of death by rising from the dead three days later. He's going to conquer. He's going to be victorious over all these ancient evil powers. And if we have faith in him too, we will be victorious in Jesus Christ. How is he going to accomplish it? Look at that second phrase. By having his heel bruised on the head of the serpent. By dying for us. By taking on every single one of our sins in toto, past, present, and future. By taking on every ounce of your shame, the shame that you feel now and will feel later, by being pierced for our transgressions, we are healed in Christ. Who is this God? This is the God who saves us at great cost to himself, not because we deserve it, but simply because he loves us. Brothers, he gives us the promise of a new representative, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who did everything that Adam was supposed to do but failed. Jesus passed the temptation not in the garden, that paradise, but in the desert. He pushed back the kingdom of darkness by exercising demons. He pushes forth his, God's, his Father's kingdom, and he pushes it forth now through his church. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live but couldn't. He paid the debt that you and I had to pay so that we wouldn't have to. And when we receive him by faith, this is what happens. You receive his life. There's that federal headship. That's not fair either. But in his grace, God makes it happen. When you receive Christ by faith, everything that Jesus did and accomplished, we receive. 
where God no longer looks at you like a little sinner, like a little rebel, like a little traitor, like a little Adam. He looks at you like a little Christ. That's the hope of the gospel, brothers, all the way back in Genesis 3, that Jesus makes us new. He brings us back into fellowship with his Father. He gives us his Spirit so that day by day we become more and more like him. And ultimately, he gives us the promise that when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a garden. There's going to be a garden city that covers the entire earth. And we'll be able to walk with God in an unbridled way once again to an exalted state even greater than what Adam experienced before the fall. You and I are not being remade in the image of Adam. We're being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. Our minds that we're having renewed by the gospel is not Adam's mind, but it's the mind of Christ himself. Who is this God? He's the God whose love is far greater than our greatest sin. Many years ago, <laughs> there's a 15th century marble statue of Adam sculpted by Tullio Lombardo that fell at the Met. It broke into a dozen pieces. This thing was the prized piece of the Met during that time period. It was, it was just priceless. One night, it fell and broke in to a dozen different pieces. At nighttime, the people that were there were, of course, the night staff, the guards, and they were, of course, were pointing fingers at one another. I mean, one of them was going to lose their job. I mean, this was a major thing. Uh, the next day, the manager of the Met comes out and says, it wasn't anybody's fault. There was a crack in the foundation. Adam fell inexplicably on his own. Which is a little on the nose. True story. Originally, the prognosis was terrible. This thing is just ruined. But after they hired an expert sculptor from Europe, I can't remember his name, he came and studied it, investigated it, and he came up with a great prognosis. After many hours of restorative work, Adam would be made new. That's what Genesis 3 teaches. Genesis 3 not only tells us why we are the way we are, but it points us to the true sculptor, the one who can make us whole. Friends, God's love and his grace is beyond comprehension. Now, Genesis 3.15 does present every single one of us with a choice. Will we choose to stay ruined in Adam? Or with repentant hearts by faith, will we go to the second Adam, the one who can make us new? There's really no choice, is there? Our God is the God who, even in our condemnation and our ruin, deals with us gently. And even though we deserve condemnation, he offers us grace in his son. The next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about the outgrowth of the fall, this broken shalom and the effects that it had on the world, but we will never lose sight of the God of grace. And praise be to him for that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that even in the worst moment of our history, the tragic story of the fall, you are a gracious God. That you give us hope in your Son. And Father, I pray that even when we struggle and toil in this life and even fall to sin, our eyes would always be on Christ, the one who makes us whole. We thank you for the gospel. Help us always to be motivated by the gospel to love you and to love each other in response. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.